Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're hosting another show from the venue of Oak Haven Health. It's a beautiful setting here in southwestern Michigan where I've had the privilege of working as one of the uh, visiting staff helping with a lifestyle program, an intensive lifestyle change program. They have lecturers from throughout the country, people involved in different ways, uh, cooks who are assisting the regular team. And one of the people that's also in the same situation as me helping out with the program from some distance, uh, having arrived here in the last week, is Dr. Franklin Kobos. I'm telling you about him because he's sitting right across from me here in our virtual studio. Franklin? Hi, David. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's been a privilege to meet Franklin. I've uh, gotten acquainted with you here over the last week, and I've learned some interesting things. You're, by training, an anesthesiologist. Yes, I, I trained in anesthesia. That's right. You're right. So a lot of folks, when they hear that, they immediately know what it is, but Whenever we mention these technical names of medical specialties, I always think it's good to break it down. So you have, you're have you an MD. That's correct. But you have special training in a, a specific discipline. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Anesthesiology, right, the study of anesthesia um, as a physician. There's a, a simple phrase I developed in residency, I guess it was, to express to people how I, I thought of myself or felt I was doing. And I don't know if it's... The best way of describing, I think if you looked up on the internet what the American Society of Anesthesiologists describe ourselves as doing, it might be a bit different, but for the sake of understandability mm -hmm. and what people perceive that I do, okay, I said, I told people that I am, um, I'm responsible for robbing people of their basic survival mechanisms and then paid to make sure that they live. Huh, okay, so... Break this down for us. You rob people of their basic survival mechanisms. What does that involve? Well, when you go to surgery, we promise that you get to go to sleep, which mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. a misnomer, certainly. But it's okay. understood by people, so we use that term, sleep. Mm -hmm. But to to blunt, severely blunt, the survival responses to stress, trauma, injury, mm -hmm. so that you uh, hold still and actually pass physically through a surgery. Okay. Okay. Uh, is is tricky business, and people uh, receiving these medications tend to not have sufficient respiratory effort, mm. uh, and their their blood pressure tends to lower, mm -hmm. and those type of things. Things that you normally wouldn't have to worry about, mm -hmm. but uh, under surgery they get, uh, you know, they start to change in in dangerous ways, and so you have to control that to a degree to make sure people safely pass through the threats of, of surgery. I heard one surgeon say all surgery is trauma. Don't, don't try to say I do or don't do trauma surgery. All surgery is trauma. Mm. It's just a matter of what happens when we finish closing the wounds. Interesting. So let's talk about an example. So someone's listening today. Maybe they're in an Indian Health Service uh, facility. They're listening to the radio. Uh, maybe they're in some kind of other medical setting. Yes. And they're anticipating a surgery. And you're telling them basically when they do that abdominal surgery, just for sake of example, they're going to be cutting you open. And uh, this is going to be traumatic to your body. It is. 
It is. We've done a good job in modern medicine minimizing the risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, another thing I remember from residency, it was a saying they told us is was to discourage using even the word sleep. You know, mm-hmm. so you get to sleep through your cardiac surgery and bypass. And one of the one of the guys said, "Do you really think a surgeon could come into your room at night and cut open your sternum and put his hands in your chest and you sleep through that?" Uh-huh. <laughs> so that just you know, kind of just a humorous way of right, trying right. to reiterate that it's not really sleep and it's not really as easy as we make it seem. Uh, but when done well, the patients do seem to come through. Uh, with the perception that, yeah, I got to sleep through it. It was great. My surgeon is the best on the planet. The, the, the nurses and the anesthesia team were fantastic. I love it. I recommend you go so to some place and, and, and have your surgery because they're wonderful people. All true. But it's, it's challenging and complex underneath the surface. So basically, you're largely, as an anesthesia specialist, taking responsibility to make sure that person is breathing. You may be breathing for them in many surgeries. Is that right? Yes. Yes, uh, you can approach it in two different ways depending on the location of the surgery. Typically, surgeon, surgeons who need to access the thorax or chest and the mid to upper abdomen are going to be physically interfering enough with respiratory function that we will assist or control respiratory function under anesthesia. On the other hand, I work with orthopedists or hand surgeons on the on the outer extremities, mm-hmm. whereby it is not at all difficult to allow patients to breathe on their own with their own respiratory drive and 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 not assist in really any way. Okay, so a lot of folks are, are listening in. They're saying, "Hey, we know what anesthesiologists do," uh, but what's interesting today to me is we don't just have physicians who are involved in this specialty. We also have highly trained nurses. Yes, we Tell do. us a little bit about how that works. Um, it's a really nice way of making sure that everybody in this nation, you know, we have a lot of health needs, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people need surgery. There aren't enough anesthesiologists to, to go around, to be honest. And, and so it's important that we have well-trained nurses who administer anesthesia. Depending on your state and local laws, that, those nursing uh, staff, the nurse anesthetists, do not require or need a, a physician supervising them. Hmm. Um, other locations do require it, or certain uh, bylaws or hospitals choose to electively include anesthesiologists either directly providing anesthesia for individual patients in the operating room, or what I have done mostly in my career is uh, what we call a team model, where I work side-by-side with and at times in the rooms with a nurse anesthetists but commonly will just be as a, uh, a consultant throughout the day, making sure everything's set up, lined, uh, ready to go for every patient. And I'm not actually in the room the whole time. Mm-hmm. The nurse is uh, primarily the one anesthetizing a patient through their surgery. So it's a, a team model that works quite well. Now, I've been doing medicine for a long time, and we won't say how long so as not to date myself. Okay. But I can remember in the old days... It was routine for a patient to come in the night before a surgery. Yeah. The yeah. anesthesiologist would meet with them. Sure. Mm-hmm. They would, you know, have this consultation, you know, work any things out. And uh, then the next day they're in for the surgery. In today's world, that often doesn't happen, does it? I, I, it's really rare. Yeah. Unless you're already in the hospital for related or other reasons. Um You know, many, if not most surgeries, at least that I've been involved with with my practice, are outpatient-based surgeries. You're not so critically ill that you're in the hospital for a few days getting stabilized and 
and then deemed safe and well enough to pass through a required surgical procedure. Mm-hmm. These days, that's it's diagnosed and, and decided in the outpatient setting, and then in some future date, a surgeon is going to have you on the schedule to manage your surgical problems. And so, uh, no, you don't get as close a hands-on and face-to-face interaction with the anesthesiologist as we used to um, used to be able to do. You don't see it now. So one of the questions is, I mean, most of us at some time in our life are going to face the possibility or at least the likelihood, I think it's safe to say, of, of some type of surgical procedure. I'm afraid so. Yeah. And the question is, especially in today's world, where we often don't have the privilege of sitting down with an anesthesiologist in advance, I thought it would be great on today's show to have a real live anesthesia specialist tell us what you would like every patient to know prior to having surgery. Now, granted, most of us listening are not saying, well, we're going to have surgery tomorrow. This is really a great show. But, you know, but what should I keep in mind? Well, hopefully you'll remember one day. Exactly. I remember exactly. that guy on the radio. Didn't he tell us something about it? Yeah. 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 So help us out. Well, what would you like people to know if they're going to be anticipating surgery? I would, you know, I'd like people to know that when we say nothing to eat and drink, nothing before surgery, that's what we mean. Okay. <laughs> Don't put anything in this hole just beneath your eyes and nose. Uh, you'll be surprised how many people will um, chew tobacco, chew chewing mm. gum, have pieces of hard candy. Um, or, or even, you know, drink things in the morning, even though we say don't eat or drink, we do allow things such as a cl- what we call clears, uh, okay. water, uh, even carbonated beverages, though I don't personally recommend them, are allowed by the guidelines, mm-hmm. preoperative mm-hmm. fasting guidelines, they do that. But I don't know why. It just seems like a lot of people take those recommendations quite lightly or not, not as seriously as I wish. And that raises the number one historical risk for any patient coming for surgery was aspiration pneumonia. And it took us some time early in the years of anesthesia history to figure out uh, what the problem was with that. Okay, so so break this down for us. Aspiration pneumonia, what is that and why does it have anything to do with surgery? Right. If the stomach is not empty and you become anesthetized and the muscles relax Mm -hmm. and then there's pressure by a surgeon's hands or something, Ah. stomach contents can passively be pushed back the opposite direction they should go Mm -hmm. and come back to the the, the throat, mouth, and then trickle down or be inhaled into your your airway. Mm. That acid, along with physical particles from the stomach, creates a pneumonia-like response in the body, which is not treatable by antibiotics because it was not caused by bacteria. It was caused by stomach acid. Mm. We call that aspiration pneumonia. I believe in the old days they called it Mendelssohn's because I think he was the anesthesiologist who described this repetitive problem with people. And that's how that was the genesis of fasting protocols mm. for, for patients prior to having surgery. It's not that we dislike you or think you're fat and need to lose weight or this. It had only to do with the number one cause of death uh, associated with anesthesia in the early era, which was aspiration pneumonia. So if if someone says nothing after midnight, nothing by mouth. That's what they mean. Really? And so it means no water. That's what it means, though I think it was 2017, I think maybe, the American Society of Anesthesiology modified the guidelines some to allow for water and other clear liquids up to, I believe, two hours 
prior to surgery because some repetitive studies and close investigation did reveal that there was no additional risk for most people. When I say most people, there are some people out there who have delayed gastric emptying times, mm -hmm. people who don't digest food well. Maybe you're coming in because you have a gastric outlet obstruction and you're not moving stuff through anyway. Uh, pregnant patients might be another good example of, okay. of people who should be more cautious about um, in what we call NPO status or nothing per oral prior to that. But it, overall, I think that the standards have um, taken into consideration that you don't have to die of thirst or worry about mm -hmm, dying. Mm -hmm, you can mm -hmm. have some, uh, I think it's a full eight-ounce glass of water, up to two hours. Okay, but nothing mm -hmm. closer than two hours. Now, sometimes and nothing other than, say, water or a clear. Okay. Because if you come in uh -huh. and say, you know, I had a patient once came in and said, we just had a suspicion that this person wasn't really probably following directions huh. closely. Okay. And upon careful evaluation, they had some chicken and Cheetos. Oh, my. And, um, you know, so that. So what happened? Just a little bit. Oh, we, have, we have to cancel that surgery. Okay. It's, okay. it's simply not safe. It is unethical to ignore the facts that uh, the, a risk of an aspiration event in a non-emergent surgery mm -hmm. can be ignored. You, you can ethically do that as a physician. First, do no harm. It's not that I was angry at them mm -hmm. for some uh, mm -hmm. attempted deception or, or partial truth. It's simply I have to be true to the principles of, of ethical medicine. So how hard was it to convince that person? Here they are already for the surgery. They're, they're uh, looking forward to it, perhaps, or maybe they're dreading it, but they know it's got to be done. Did they uh, take that well when you told them we can't do the surgery? Well, no, and no, no one does, particularly even the surgeons don't take it particularly well because it interferes with your career. You've taken some time off. Mm -hmm. Perhaps your children needed to have a babysitter. Uh, it interferes with your school if you're a college or you're involved with education. It's a major life event to schedule a surgery and then to postpone it even later in the day. Because mm -hmm. you have to have a ride. It's not like you're going to drive yourself home after surgery. You have rides. Family members may have flown in from out of town to help take care wow. of the kids or the okay. house. And so it's it's not typically received well. And that's why I think if I could just say one thing, I would say please take us seriously when we say nothing to eat or drink after midnight. Now, the, the one thing that tripped me up yes. was the hard candy. I, I would think the average person would say, well, that's just dissolving. There's nothing left. But even that is is a problem, huh? Oh, the, the body knows that that's food. It, expect, it would then expect to be fed. And mm. so the gastric... Uh, processes begin and are triggered by chewing gum and hard candy, stuff like that. Wow. Dr. Franklin Kobos, he's an anesthesia specialist. He's sharing with us things that can help you more successfully go through surgery or even have that surgery. More important messages coming up on the next segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Dr. Kobos is staying by. You do the same. More right up after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with Dr. Franklin Cobos. We're speaking about something that you may need to know, hopefully in that too distant future, hopefully far off somewhere. And uh, you might be saying, why do I need to know how to successfully go through a surgery? It's because if you don't have to go through something like this, you've got a friend or relative who's anticipating surgery perhaps very soon. Dr. Kobos, your specialty is actually helping people be sedated and be in a state where the surgeon can work on them and then come back alert, feeling well. Well, feeling well might be uh, an exaggeration after just having <laughs> Is that too much surgery. to ask? You know, yeah, but, but anyway, so that's your job. And you've been doing this for uh, for more than a few weeks, right? Yes, yes. Okay. I I finished my anesthesiology uh, training in Omaha, Nebraska, mm-hmm. in 2005, I guess that was. Okay, so you're, you're a bona fide board, board veteran. Ever since. Yeah, yeah, 15 years or so. Okay, this is excellent. So, Dr. Kobos, let's uh, talk a little bit more to folks. Okay. Um, as a physician, you know, typically with someone going into surgery, we're told as internal medicine specialists to encourage the patient to stop smoking, to look at this as an opportunity. We tell them, you're not going to be able to smoke in the hospital anyway. You're going to do a lot better in the surgery if you've gotten rid of that addictive commercial tobacco use. Is that really all that important from an anesthesiologist's perspective? Great question. Uh, can I say yes and no? Is okay. That, is that, yeah, yeah. Is that let, let, let's, let's go with I'll it. first say the no part. Okay, okay. No, it's not important. And, and say why I can okay, say that, but then sure. I want to focus more on the yes. That okay, it is fair enough, fair enough. I'll say no from the sense or standpoint that um, it takes about, uh, if I remember the studies, uh, six to eight weeks of smoking cessation prior to the anesthetizing event mm-hmm. for us to measure uh, clinically significant improved outcomes from 
pulmonary complications and such that you would readily ascribe to cigarette in a, in a patient's lifestyle. So, so let me see if I'm hearing you correct. Okay. What you're saying is to think that you can wait till you stop smoking till the day before surgery and get significant benefit is erroneous. You That is correct. You would have had to have stopped maybe Roughly two months, two months before prior to get those benefits. To get the benefits that you're really going to want to, that will matter. Okay, okay. So I'm, I'm tracking with okay. you. Uh, on the other hand, you can also measure the, uh, the reduction of carbon monoxide and other mm-hmm. noxious things that are in cigarettes as quickly as, say, two two to three days maybe okay. following smoking cessation. And, and that's beneficial, mm-hmm. and, and I would encourage people to do that. But truly, the the true benefit comes from stopping well in advance and then maintaining that new pattern of, of no smoking in your life uh, far beyond surgery uh, because what unfortunately can happen is you will advise them to stop smoking. They do. Um, we anesthetize them. They have this surgery. But then they start smoking again relatively shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. after they get out of the hospital, which these days is typically a very short stay. Mm-hmm. You're discharged. And the smoking, as I know you know, but perhaps listeners do not, many of my patients do not, realize that the smoking habit really strongly affects the, the, the microcirculation, which is critical for wound healing. Mm-hmm. And so if you begin smoking again after surgery, it will definitely interfere with wound healing, and particularly my diabetic patients. Okay. Just it almost makes me weep thinking of these faces. I see them uh, coming to my good friend, Dr. Haverly, a podiatrist, for repeated foot surgeries mm. as they're losing first this toe, then two more toes. Then you're talking about amputations uh, at the ankle or below the knee because the combination of those effects that cigarettes have with diabetes I've never seen somebody uh, uh, come out of that kind of a spiral. Um, as long as they are both diabetic and smoking, I've never seen us not need to amputate more. Wow. That's And that's tragic. If we could help patients more successfully as physicians battle either or, and certainly both, mm-hmm. bad habits, they stand a chance. But if a patient is both a smoker and a diabetic, that is, an, I, in my opinion, experience an insurmountable insult to the peripheral vascular systems and hands, toes, feet, hands. Okay, so hopefully if you're uh, tuning in today and you have a loved one who is uh, both using that commercial addictive tobacco and uh, also dealing with diabetes, this is is a bad combination. If they haven't had a problem yet, so right now they're, they're 35, they've got diabetes, they're smoking, and uh, can they say, well, I'll wait until I lose the, you know, the first toe? They can. Many do. But there's really nothing I've found that can really help them at that point. So even quitting the smoking will not help, uh, you know, stop that progression of losing it, more and yes, more of the Yes, yes. If, if they can manage that. I guess in my head, I was hearing you describe the scenario. People can be lulled into a false security when they're younger. Mm-hmm. You know, 20s and 30s. Well, I, you know, I, I was diagnosed with diabetes and I've been smoking since a teenager. I got all my fingers and toes. I must be okay. You can believe that. But when you see you yourself losing your first toe, it will sink in. Mm-hmm. That perhaps I, I have now waited too 
long. Okay, and the and the first amputation may not just be a toe. I mean, it could be the whole. That's right. Uh, below the knee. If or you're lucky, like if if you're lucky, it'll be one toe that got nicked or scraped or dinged in a fungal or bacterial infection, advanced to the point where antibiotics didn't work for you, and then you're then you're coming to us in surgery. Mm-hmm. And I would briefly add the reason the antibiotics are not working are the same reason why you're not healing. Hmm. The blood supply is simply insufficient to take that antibiotic out of your your pill or your injection that you have from the doctor and take it to the infected area to help your body battle that infection. The the circulatory system has just suffered too much and so for too many years. Okay. You've gone beyond helping us just with our surgeries. You've been so gracious to try to keep us out of the operating room. Now, aren't you a, I little, do what I can. Aren't you a little bit afraid, though, that that might jeopardize your business? <laughs> I guess if, if that was what I was in it for, yeah, I suppose so. But even if I were, I think the the more cold, heartless answer would be people will never take this degree of health advice seriously enough wow. on a wide scale that we will run out of, quotes customers to pay us to do this. I, I hate to say that. I, I think it's there's a lot of truth in that. But I have, I have no fear of helping people too much or too many people living too healthily that I, that I show up to work one day and there's just nobody who needs surgery. Okay, fair enough. So what about other things? An anesthesiologist, you're talking with yes. uh, thousands of people tuning into American Indian Living, and you know that some of them, even in the next week or two, Surgeries awaiting them. Others, it's sometime in the future. What do they need to know that can keep them, uh, well, help them go through that surgery as successfully as possible? Um, boy, there's so much you could say, and, and it's part of me regrets those the loss of those days where you could spend more time with with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things I might suggest would be important to consider or talk about in today's environment would relate to narcotics. Hmm. You know, the okay. opioid crisis is headlines more and more frequently. It's, it's a it's a public health crisis, mm-hmm. and I would hope that anesthesiologists would be on the forefront of speaking to these problems. So let me, let me say a few things that mm-hmm. would relate mm-hmm. to the average person coming for surgery. Narcotics, while a very old class of drug, mm-hmm. you know, part, part of why the new world was sought after was to get a new route to the opium in the Far East. Hmm. Indian Trade Company was big into that. The newer narcotics, the synthetic, the very potent synthetic narcotics have have been a real curse uh, or a, a two-edged sword. Okay, okay. In that they're excellent uh, pharmaceutical agents for acute pain. By that I mean pain that occurs in a, in a small window of time, such as coming in for a surgery on mm-hmm. a day okay. and having some days of recovery where you expect to hurt and you need some additional help to uh-huh, uh-huh. to soothe those discomforts. But that's one thing, acute pain. But narcotics in the past 20 years have been dramatically uh, ramped up in, in, in that physicians and, and health professionals turn for them as a means of chronic mm. pain treatment. And that has been a disaster. Mm. So I would tell patients or your listeners, mm-hmm. if you're coming for surgery, please don't be frightened that your anesthesiologist is going to give you narcotics. Oh, okay. You know, morphine, fentanyl, these things. Uh-huh. They, you're not going to become an addict instantaneously because you came for surgery and they gave you narcotics. But you must also be cautious that they are not used over an extended period of time. Mm. That's why your surgeon is typically not going to write for more than about five days worth for you to have once you leave the hospital setting. 
That is intelligent. It's important that we do that so that you don't become acclimated or, quotes, as some people say, hooked hmm. on pain pills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So don't be frightened when we say that we're going to use them. We understand that you do not want to be an addict. We do not want you to become an addict. Mm -hmm. But we don't feel that suffering is necessarily uh, an unavoidable part of surgery. Many people come for surgery, and it's, it's, a, it's just a fine experience, and they don't have any real negative recollections of it. So that would be one thing I would say about mm -hmm. the narcotics. Secondly, for those of you who, who have had experience in addiction and, and you've come, you've, you fear narcotics, I, I want to tell you some things about that, too, oh, okay. to offer some encouragement. Okay. We're going to be talking more about this uh, opioid crisis and how it interfaces with perhaps that next surgery that you're going to have. How can you go through the surgery with adequate pain control? How can you go through that recovery process and not have to worry about possible addiction down the road. Dr. Franklin Kobos is staying by for our second half of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will continue today's interview with Dr. Kobos, a specialist in anesthesiology, when we come back right after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood... Or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose from the campus of Oak Haven Health. We're doing a series of radio shows from this health center in southwestern Michigan. One of the visiting staff helping out with an intensive 10-day lifestyle program is someone that you may not expect to find in an intensive lifestyle change program, a preventive medicine program, an anesthesiologist, an anesthesia specialist by the name of Dr. Franklin Kobos. Dr. Kobos, you are actually based, uh, well, some distance from here, aren't you? Yeah, middle Tennessee, a little town called Pleasant Hill, if you can find that on the map. That's that might be a challenge for it any would, of us. It was for me when I <laughs> And, and how, how long a trek is that if you were to, to hop in a car and drive here? Oh, 10, 11 hours, something like okay, that. Okay, okay. So we're going to talk more as we go through this interview about what would bring an anesthesia specialist to a center that's trying to keep people out of surgery. But uh, before we do that, we're trying to get some pointers from you about how to successfully undergo surgery if and when we need such. We've been talking about opioids and some of the the legitimate worries people have about those being used inappropriately. What I first yeah. heard you saying in our last segment is don't worry if the doctors think you need some narcotic pain relief during the recovery process because sometimes uh, that's important for you to get up and about and do other things that would help decrease your risk of complications, that's right? That's right, yeah. And so along those lines, I want to say again to the idea of non-narcotic pain interventions. Okay. These would include things like regional anesthesia. Mm. In orthopedics, we like to use spinal anesthetics or uh, peripheral nerve blocks where there's an injection in a part of the body in a, done in a manner very reminiscent of how dentists will inject a certain part of the jaw or face to make an, a region anesthetized. And so mm-hmm. regional anesthesia can be used for much larger surgeries in the body, not just in the dentist office. Okay. And this dramatically reduces the amount of narcotics required to bring you successfully through the immediate and uh, shortly thereafter following phases of your surgical experience. And so for patients who have been on narcotics for some time mm-hmm. and, and have a tolerance or even a frank addiction oh, to okay. narcotics uh-huh. and they have to have surgery we have of late developed much better strategies and techniques to use uh, uh, non-narcotics in that patient's Mm. regimen. And Mm. this is besides just the strictly regional anesthetics, which do not require a loss of consciousness necessarily. But we can use things like uh, intravenous Tylenol. Really? Intravenous Tylenol? Yeah, I know. I laughed at that so hard the first time somebody told me about it. I was like, "Um, couldn't you just take three tablets or four and Uh be fine? And it turns out that the pharmacokinetics, uh, specifically how the medicine is distributed in the body and how mm-hmm, it works, mm-hmm. is different when taken orally versus intravenously. So when you're giving intravenous Tylenol, is it yeah. like a continuous infusion of it, or do you give a burst or a bolus, we call I, it? I use a burst. Uh-huh, I use a okay. burst, and then a lot of the surgeons I work with will use it every six hours or so huh. for the first day. Yeah. And that's it, because uh-huh. we know Tylenol. Uh, can build up or damage the liver Mm -hmm, when used mm -hmm. too much or too often. So that's only one. We can infuse lidocaine. We can infuse your body with local anesthetics. Uh, We can use other uh, classes of medicine, what we call Mm non-narcotic painkillers, in a a la carte type of approach or menu in an effort to decrease the amount of narcotics or eliminate the use of narcotics in surgery. Um, 
So there are, there are things we can do to make it a little bit easier. So the message here is if someone has a history of narcotic addiction, whether they're in the throes of that or whether they're clean, make sure you let the anesthesiologist specialist know. know that. They will be much better, much more uh, positioned to help you pass through that period in a, in a, in a more comfortable fashion. Now, all surgery is associated with pain. Okay. But most of us feel that suffering should be optional. Okay, okay. And that's where we step in. That's what we want to do for you. Very good. One of the other issues that I know is often discussed when it comes to surgery is some of the mental challenges that may come in the context of surgery. Some years oh, right. ago, yeah. uh, I remember a patient, uh, he was said to be just this, this kind uh, elderly gentleman he ended up in the hospital. I believe he had some kind of procedure. And the next thing I knew, I'd never met him until they called me. I was uh, working in the hospital at that time. And they said, you know, Mr. Jones has uh, just gone crazy. He'd yeah. pulled out his um, telemetry, his heart monitoring cable, big thick cable. He was brandishing it as a whip. And uh, he had just completely lost it. And, and the implication was it had something to do with the medications that were used supposedly to, to sedate him. But he had it gone the other way. So is is this a real scenario? It is. It is. Uh, I don't see it that often, but it does happen. And when it does happen, you know, if I was forced to give you a percentage, I'm sure a listener would want to know what what's my risk. Okay. It's, it's usually more common in the elderly population. Mm-hmm. Who has a lower tolerance for relative overdoses? You know, it's oh, not okay. that we're talking about someone has nearly lethally overdosed grandma uh-huh. or grandpa, uh-huh. but that their body's physiology combined with their age and their aging brain uh, tends to uh, increase the the experience of central nervous system side effects, particularly from narcotics okay, okay. and anesthetics. Oh, we okay. we view those as differently. A mm-hmm. narcotic is not an anesthetic. And an anesthetic is not a narcotic. So what's the difference? The difference is a a narcotic is an analgesic. It is something that kills pain. Okay. Most of us, when we're conscious, is when we worry about hurting. Okay. When we're unconscious, you don't experience pain, so it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. whether or not you have an analgesic. So you can receive pain control whether you're asleep or anesthetized or not. But if you're not anesthetized, you are not going to have surgery. So anesthe- uh, when you're anesthetized, that means you're basically asleep. You're unaware of, of what's happening. Correct. I would define anesthesia the way my mentor Ted Eager did, which is uh, an anesthesia is the state is a is a loss of consciousness and an unresponsiveness to mm-hmm. noxious stimuli. Oh, okay. That does not mean that there is is uh, that pain does not exist or cannot be treated simultaneously, but anesthesia specifically is the loss of consciousness mm-hmm. such that you do not recall or are aware of your surroundings or events and the passage of time, and you physically do not uh, jerk or try to run mm. off the table with right, 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 right. knife in you. That's anesthesia. Okay. But analgesia can be achieved with Tylenol and CVS. Uh-huh. It can be a- achieved in, in many other circumstances outside the surgical suite. Okay. So... We're talking about especially older individuals might be at higher risk. You were going to try to give us an estimate on just how common really serious mental health uh Yeah, for me, I probably are. see that every few months. Okay, and you're doing lots of procedures. And- in our community hospital, we would anesthetize uh, 20 to 40 people in a day. Okay, and out of those, what, what I'm, if I'm doing the math right, and again, I, I know you're not wanting to be precise here, but we're talking... 
one in one a thousand. In, okay, okay, maybe? okay. Fair one enough. or two in a thousand. So, are there other cognitive effects that people should be worried about? Worried about? If I thought I was worried about, I probably would recommend people not have anesthesia. Okay, okay. But there are concerns that I would like to address. Uh-huh. Uh, I recently had a close friend and neighbor in Pleasant Hill okay. call me up and ask about an upcoming surgery, and, and the concern they had was related to their brain function. Hmm. Uh, let me tell you what I tell my close friends and my family members. If you're going to have surgery, please have anesthesia and, okay. and accept the, the small risk of complications from it. And the ones to the brain would include these. Uh, nausea and vomiting following anesthesia mm-hmm. because that's largely a central nervous system controlled process and uh, some short-term confusion okay. and short-term memory loss in the day of and perhaps one day after okay. surgery. And you know most people are very acceptable of that given mm-hmm. the trade-off like, oh, I get to sleep through surgery and mm-hmm. that's okay, I'll take it. But the older we get, uh, I feel the accumulation of oxidative stress the relative reduction in, in proper blood flow through mm. atherosclerotic uh, circulatory system of the brain make it more likely that hypoxia and metabolic imbalances can be exacerbated or longer lived. Okay, so in other in words, in, in plain English. Okay, sorry. If, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. So if the circulation of the brain is not as good yeah. as we get older, yeah. which is typically the case uh-huh. on our typical lifestyles in, in North America – that then we're not going to be able to handle as well the anesthesia? Is that pretty much the message, at least on a mental level? Or yeah. am, I, am I saying uh, it a little I, too strongly? I, I don't, I'm not going to eject on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I think most people are more concerned with the actual direct, the, the perception of a direct toxic or direct dangerous effect of the drug itself, which would lead them to believe, oh, don't give me that. Okay, so like a long-term effect where you're... Right. Okay, and you're saying in general that's not the case. In general, that's not a concern. There are articles beginning to be published now that are elucidating the more specific risks in certain situations that we can try to avoid in the future. But for now, to avoid anesthesia simply means to avoid surgery most of the time, unless you're going to have something that can be done under a totally regional anesthetic, like C-sections. Okay, pregnant okay. patients, we commonly do cesarean sections with no mind-altering or intravenous medications. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second uh, qualification, you know, no intravenous medications, stems from our concern for mothers who intend to breastfeed in the mm-hmm. immediate future. Mm-hmm. And so we mm-hmm. truly, to spare the mother central nervous system side effects and the child any untoward effects of medications transferred to them through breastfeeding, we literally do a pure regional anesthetic with no drugs like inhaled anesthetics, mm-hmm. which are the primary culprit when you start talking about uh, post-operative cognitive dysfunction, inhaled anesthetics. So so for people who have those concerns, mm-hmm. I might suggest requesting a total intravenous anesthetic with propofol. Hmm. That is now a reasonable request and alternate because the price is no longer prohibitive the way it was okay. in the earlier stages of propofol use in anesthesia. It was something we resisted because it was cost prohibitive, but now it's a, a affordable agent and people can have a surgery with only propofol if they if they needed to. And you can avoid the, the, the mental side effects of an inhaled, old school, breathed interesting. anesthetic. Interesting, very interesting. What about the unique example of someone who goes on one of these heart-lung machines, say for a heart bypass? We've heard a lot of stories about people coming out of those. I think of... Uh, uh, 
an individual. I, I once saw in a social setting, he was saying, you know, my, my father, highly functional, uh, very cognitively challenging job. He had this bypass surgery, and uh, after it, he was never the, never same. the same. Is that uh, is that for real? It's very. It is for real. And um, while, to be completely honest, I should say that it is a very multifactorial hmm. problem. My opinion, my professional opinion, is that two uh, factors are the main determinants of that type of a person's outcome. One is the uh, the, the problematic circulation while being quotes on pump and the heart is stopped and there's this artificial circulatory process that we put you through that in itself is not physiologic and it probably very much is responsible for some of the po- the cognitive problems people experience the second which i have not heard many people at all talk about in the past 10 years came to me from an engineering friend who published in the journal nature i believe it was mm. that the other main cause is too high of a temperature in the brain, which mm. allows for a higher demand of oxygen, which is not being supplied well on pump, mm-hmm. and that when the brain is not cooled sufficiently in drop, you, you have mo- small strokes. And then it's discovered when you wake up. Huh. Wow. Well, in our final segment, we're going to come back and talk about, well, perhaps how you can avoid surgery altogether, especially when it comes to things that are cardiovascular in nature. Dr. Franklin Kobos, not only an anesthesiologist, but... Uh, becoming very active in the area of lifestyle medicine. That's what brought him here to Oak Haven Health. You'll hear more about that in our final segment. Don't miss it. Coming right up after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. 
Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me, Dr. Franklin Cobos. Franklin, it's been great to have you with me on the show. It's been lots of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for sharing your insights into anesthesia, how we can go through that whole process better. But I think everyone, actually, to be honest with you, myself included, is wondering how you go from an anesthesia specialist working in the high-tech environment of the operating room and hospitals to getting an interest in lifestyle medicine. Here at Oak Haven Health, you're actually contributing as one of the visiting staff, visiting faculty, whatever you want to be called, uh, helping out with this intensive lifestyle change program. What is it that gets your interest about this type of medicine? Whew, great question. Um, I would have to say it's rational and it's sustainable. Hmm. There's a lot in American medicine right now that I don't view as being characterized by those adjectives. Okay, okay. Definitely not sustainable, uh-huh. and a lot of it's not making rational sense to me. As wow. a scientist, you know, I was a chemist before I became a physician. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. I, I would, my my tra- trajectory in life was going to be uh, sy- synthesis of, of of medicines. Really? Yeah, organomedical you know, synthesis. Interesting. Was I was into PhD work, and I, and I quit that. I worked at Burroughs Welcome Pharmaceuticals for about a year uh-huh. in a college work study program, and they had just received patent or uh, not patent permission to uh, market AZT. So I was in the lab that was developing protease inhibitors. So this was for HIV, HIV infection, right? Uh-huh. Back in the day, and I didn't think I could commit my life to that. I mean, it was it was fun. It was, mm-hmm, I enjoyed mm-hmm. it, but I remember one day, you know, thinking ten years of this will be enough. Okay. And so I I shifted into medicine uh-huh. shortly thereafter, and I uh, have loved it. Uh-huh. A lot about anesthesiology it reminds me of my you know math, chemistry, physics okay, uh, okay. training, and I get to use it in real life, real uh-huh. people. And I spectroscopy, EKG reading, capnography, where we look at the gases that are being breathed in and out by uh-huh, patients. Uh-huh. Lab work in the ICU, pre or post op. A lot of neat stuff that is reminiscent of my science era. Okay, so you didn't but, struggle with the biochemistry like some of the med students. You know, did. actually, I did. Oh, did I, you? I, okay. I think my first biochem exam was fifty three percent. I was terrified because I had a four point in chemistry. Uh-huh. But biochem, I was weak on. I was great in, in inorganic and organic chemistry, but biochemistry just about had my lunch. Okay, chemistry. but we're glad you glad you <laughs> I made it. the storm. Yeah. And so we're here today. So, okay, so you're looking out there at the landscape of medicine, people throwing a lot of money oh, into medicine, scads of money. not getting uh, you know, great results no. in many respects. No, it's discouraging. So what is it about lifestyle medicine that you found exciting? The results. Okay. You know, we, I mentioned previously some patients who come with diabetes and particularly the smokers who have diabetes, these repetitive trips mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to see us in the surgical arena to to help try to manage surgically these uh, intractable infections and stuff. You know, um, on a side note, when I was a chemist or a chemistry major, one of my presentations to my professors was on my belief that we would encounter what we now call extended drug resistance, the XDRs. Mm. I told them from what I had learned working at Burroughs Welcome in the lab and my research in their library that we should expect that antibiotics will cease to be effective mm-hmm. in the near future. 
And sure enough, vancomycin was brought in as a miracle drug, and lo and behold, it's not working well anymore. Mm. Other drugs have followed, and lo and behold, the same process is occurring. And so I've always foreseen a time where there would be a demand for non-pharmacologic interventions to promote health. Okay. Lifestyle medicine offers that. So you're here at O'Caven Health. I know we've been uh, given the privilege of being part of a 10-day program. People have come here to try to address things like diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, metabolic syndrome, yeah, folks with digestive issues, uh, inflammatory disorders, yeah, yeah, all kinds. Of so, whether we're speaking about this specific program going on right now that you and I are involved with, or whether we were to talk about other experiences you've had in lifestyle medicine, tell us something that that you think is exciting that our listeners would say, "Boy, I need to think twice." about looking at my lifestyle and other non-drug options for this condition? Recently, the things that have really excited me focus on diet, exercise, and sleep. Really? Okay. Yeah. The diet things that are catching my attention these days are intermittent fasting uh-huh. principles and new, very convincing evidence that not all calories are equal hmm. and that uh, you may find, if you do it correctly that you never have to count calories Hmm. or in ways restrict your enjoyment of food. The way traditionally we've taught people for a long time, you know, with calories in, calories out, you got to exercise more, eat less kind of thing. And it's, it's not worked very well for, for many people. So, so so do this, talk to someone right now who's listening. Yes. They have diabetes. Yeah. And tell them what kind of things you're doing as you work in various settings, as you counsel people, or as you give lectures. I mean, in, in different places, some places you're, you know, a licensed practicing physician, other places you may be more of a lecturer. But yeah. um, what are you telling people with, let's say, the diabetic condition? Can I assume we're talking about type 2 diabetes, please, which is please. the most common right, one where right. someone's overweight and they're insulin resistant mm-hmm. and they're really struggling with just the oral pills and perhaps their physician has now decided to add some insulin because they're just not getting better. Perfect. What can they do? I would love to tell them to not give up hope. Hmm. That that halting and reversing that specific disease process of insulin resistance that we are calling type two diabetes is not going to be as hard or painful as you as I, as a physician, was trained to believe it to be. Fair enough. And so I want to convey that message along with that hope to someone listening who perhaps for 15 years has been slowly or even rapidly, you know, mm-hmm, sliding mm-hmm. down this uh, decline in their health status with very little encouragement coming from the the magazines in the office, which are mm-hmm. mostly there to tell you, ask your doctor if this drug is right for you. Okay, okay. Uh, which he will say yes, likely, and then prescribe it to you. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can apply for a grant that you can afford that medication that was right for you. So I think it's a, it's a much more cost of lifestyle medicine is a much more cost-effective, rational, sustainable, enjoyable method through which health professionals can aid their patients. So high points with diabetes. What, what are the lifestyle messages that you give a patient who has that condition? It kind of depends on where they are in their life because the, the changes they need to make are they can be hard mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, people in America consume extraordinarily high levels of artificial sweeteners and added okay. sugars. Okay. But if they can break that habit, 
and I don't want to call it an addiction just yet because I don't know who's listening mm-hmm, or what mm-hmm, their state mm-hmm. is, but if they can refrain from the unnecessary addition into their body of all these bottled soft drinks, okay, of all these packaged snacks mm. and foods that have to be artificially sweetened uh, for people to purchase them repetitively and, and maintain sales, if you can start with those low-hanging fruits, okay, the snacks and sugars mm-hmm, and sugary mm-hmm. drinks, that is a major step in the right direction that you would need to continue to move towards okay. a more plant-based, whole foods, unpackaged uh, dietary regime for yourself. It's not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. doesn't need to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Your diabetes didn't happen overnight. But I'd offer them some encouragement and hope that it can happen. It can happen more quickly than perhaps you think. And you're going to be a lot more happier and healthier than you probably imagined yourself to be in another year or two. What I find so interesting is there are so many programs now that are focusing on this. There are residential programs like they have here at Oak Haven Health. And uh, I should mention, although neither Franklin nor I has any formal connection, we're here as as visiting uh, staff, if you will, Uh, they have a program that I've been impressed with. I don't know. Is that a unique That's why I come here. I don't know of many places in America where you can do or learn this type of stuff. Okay. And, And, in fact, that's what's happening here. So it's not just people coming to get help. But uh, Dr. John Kelly, who runs the program, uh, physician, who's the uh, actually the founding president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, actually trains physicians here in this venue to learn how to do lifestyle medicine. That's right. So here we're going to give you some contact information. If you're tuning in today, maybe this is the first in our series of shows from Oak Haven Health that you're hearing, and you're interested in coming to a residential lifestyle change program, you can get more information at simply going on the, the web to oakhavenhealth.com. That's oakhavenhealth.com. If you're looking for a phone number, if that's uh, easier to uh, navigate, you can use the phone number 269-236-8326. That's area code 269 236 8326. And again, that's Oak Haven Health. Dr. Kobos, our time has just about slipped away from us. But for those who've tuned in with us and they said, boy, it's been an interesting show. What kind of take-home messages would you give in in just short order for our listeners? I would say that you're not as dependent upon the healthcare system as you think. Mm. If you will make a decision, you know, go into the depths of your soul and decide what's really important to me in my life and how do I want to go about this experience and commit to making better choices that you already know. Mm. You, you know, I think, what good food is compared to bad food. Okay. And to not be so inclined to follow your desires in the moment, but think about the implications of what you're doing right now and how it's going to affect you in the future. And you'll make better decisions and you'll live a better life. Great message. Dr. Franklin Kobos, an anesthesiologist who also has a special interest in lifestyle medicine. That's all for today's edition of American Indian Living. From Oak Haven Health, I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.